we often cast ourselves as the lead character in the in our return stories. Uh, the fact is that we return to countries that have moved on in a way, and you have to just accept the fact that what what you're longing for is really a state of mind rather than a physical place. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. Today on the show, we have Kamal Al-Sulaili, who is a Canadian born in Yemen, a professor at the School of R- Journalism, Writing and Media at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver. And he's here to talk to us about his third book, I believe, uh, Return, Why We Go Back to Where We Come From. Thank you so much, Kamal, for joining. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Isabel. So I have to say, when I came across your book by kind of weird internet rabbit holes because unfortunately it's not in bookstores in the UK yet. I was really, really pleasantly surprised because it feels like it's a topic that we don't talk about very much, even though as an immigrant myself and and knowing many immigrants, it's something that's always on your mind, the return. Mm -hmm. But it's not part of the narrative. We we talk a lot about immigration as a kind of a one-way ticket. So Mm -hmm. what made you want to dive into this to address it? I mean, in part, exactly because of what, what you said, is that we all often talk about immigration as an outward immigration, as a, and it's all, it's more or less has this kind of narrative, is that you leave a place of war or economic uh, disadvantage and you go to a better place, or you seek a better life somewhere else, or you escape escape torture or political persecution. And, 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 and that narrative is just so overwhelming when we we think about movement in general, the movement of people. And, I, I, and I've often, often felt that, that the return aspect of, of migration, the fact that people, that migration is not just one directional, it has multi-directional, it's not just even return. People, some people return and go back to their adopted country and they return again. But on a very personal basis is actually the, 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 the book started, I started thinking about this book in 2015, when um, the war in Yemen started. And I started thinking about Yemen, where I was born in Aden, the south part of Aden. I think most of your British listeners will, <laughs> will recognize it that as a former British colony. And I started thinking about the suffering that the people are experiencing there, my connection, including my family, most of whom still live there. And I just wanted to be, you know, wanted to join them in, on some level, wanted to be there for them. And I started reconnecting with Arabic as a language, with as a culture, things that I've sort of abandoned for the longest time in order to be to become the model westernized migrant. And I, I began to think about writing something along those lines of my own personal story, but I had already written a memoir. My first book was a memoir, and I thought, I just can't. Like, I, I don't have it in me to write a full book uh, personally. So I, instead, I turned it into a book of reported nonfiction where I looked at this whole concept of return philosophically in, in migration studies, which, you know, it's begin, you know, for the last 20 years, it has, it has gained some traction. But mo- mo- most of all, just t- talking, talking about it as from different points of view of other people who, are, who have returned to their homeland and finding out what happened, what happens next. It's kind of almost like a movie when the credits end, there's a happy ending and the credits end and you don't know what happens next. Return, re, you know, we if we talk about return at all, the story ends with these people returning to where they come from. But I was really curious to know 
So what happened to them? How are, how are they faring in their, in their country of origin or ancestral homeland? And that's, that was the origin of the book. Mm-hmm. So who did you talk to? You, you traveled all over the world. And, and where did you hear from them? Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, I, I, I wanted to add a couple of more destinations, but, but COVID happened, obviously, in 2020. And I was lucky that the last reporting trip was in the uh, sort of late summer of 2019. I, I went to the Basque region. I went to Belfast, Northern Ireland, Taiwan. I went to uh, Israel and Palestine, to Ghana and Jamaica. And and. Initially, I really, uh, I really wanted to focus on homelands that are, for lack of a better word, contested, where there are at least two or more people laying claim to, to it. And so as, that's why I started in the Basque region, given the history of the Basque region in, 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 in relation to Spain, and then, and then uh, obviously Northern Ireland. And I was really curious about the situation between Taiwan and China, both in terms of ret- individual returns, but also the bigger picture of China, um, sort of working very hard to reunite or to, to return Taiwan to the Chinese main part, to become part of the Chinese mainland. And, and obviously the mother of all return stories, which is Israel and Palestine. And then I, while I was reporting the book in 2019, I heard about the year of return in Ghana. And it was too good an opportunity not to, <laughs> not to go to Ghana, to Accra, during the year of return and see how an entire nation can mobilize the, the, the concept of return, you know, for political reason, but uh, also for economic. Yeah, it's like it was, it was scheduled just for you that, <laughs> that year. Obviously, I guess for people who, who haven't heard about it, the year of return was, was it the four, 400 year anniversary? Uh, so or? it's the 400 year anniversary of the first arrival of a of slave ship to what is now the United States. Mm. So, uh, 16, uh, 1619, which is, right. again, the, the, the 1619 project. Um, and uh, uh, Ghana, what is now Ghana, features a number of ports from which the slave trade, uh, the transatlantic slave trade sort of made, uh, or ships made their way to uh, the Caribbean and, and, and North America. So, so in, in, in an effort to kind of reclaim that anniversary instead of an anniversary around slavery, it is... It, the, the government of Ghana and other governments in, in West Africa have tried in the past, but not nobody on the scale that, uh, of Ghana. It's sort of uh, very clever. It's a very clever marketing strategy. Rebranded the year instead of the year of exile, the year of return. And anyone who can, who believes they can trace their their origin to as a descendant of slavery, who is an Af- of an African descent anywhere in the world, can can return to Ghana and not necessarily to reside, but but to explore, to connect with um, sort of Africa, the motherland, and also maybe to invest, which, as you can tell from the book, in both Northern Ireland and in Ghana, their return is big business. Return, it can bring back capital, foreign investments, ways of rejuvenating stagnant economies. So there, the thing that I find most um, I wouldn't say puzzling, but the thing that I find most, most intriguing about returns is that it is such an emotional journey. Like when you say, you said you're, you're an immigrant, I'm an immigrant. And, and this, this connection to where we come from is so emotional, so deep, works on such an intrinsic, you know, deep psychological level. And yet for many countries or for many organizations, 
it is also a business opportunity or, uh, a pol- or in many cases, a political weapon. And so it's kind of stri- it straddles all these things that are the emotional, that are very hard to talk about, to decipher. Like how you tell, how you get people to explain exactly what is it about the call of the homeland. And you'll see in the book that I talk to a lot of people, particularly in Jamaica, uh, in places where I think, or Belfast, and particularly in Israel and, and, and Palestine, because I, you know, in some cases, these are either war-torn c- countries with ongoing protracted inf- uh, uh, conflicts, or just, or just uh, as in the case in Belfast, you know, after twenty years of prosperity, maybe for lack of a better word, uh, the troubles is beginning to brew again uh, after Brexit. And like, why would you want to return to a place where there is still violence? Jamaica, for example, the, vi- the general level of violence, and and try to get them to talk through these contradictions. That was probably the hardest part of the book because you, 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 you're talking to people and asking them to explain the inexplicable, the, the very subliminal, and not everyone can put that into words. Mm. Because you really focused on, on diasporas and on, on people who have a, um, a relationship to home that I found mm. really interesting because I've experienced return personally and that's kind of... That's where your book surprised me because, you know, I think selfishly when you, you kind of look for your own experiences and, right. and actually it was, it was completely different because I never thought of myself as being part of a diaspora and my reasons for leaving or for returning right. are not political. Right. But, but here you talk to people who have this kind of very almost romanticized relationship to the homeland, mm-hmm. including people who return. I don't even know if you can call it return because there are several generations removed. And so their vision of, of yeah. the, the homeland, the motherland, is can be a, a bit of a postcard right. and and I wonder what they told you about um, how the reality of return kind of matched their imagined homeland mm-hmm. it, it varied um, it varied from place to place but I, I I will give you an example from Ghana for example two of the people I talked to are one Canadian and one American man Kwame and Fule Kwame is the American Fule is the Canadian and there are different generations that are about 30 years apart, roughly. And they both really were tired of being black men in North America. They carried the weight of race and racism around them for you know, 60 years, 33 years. And, and they feel reborn once they, once they went back to, uh, once, in, 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 in Fule's case, he's actually born in Canada, but two Ghanaian parents. So it's a very recent, like it's one generation away. But in Kwame's case, he had never been to, to Ghana until 2017, I believe. And that was, he had always this dream of going back, uh, visiting, just visiting Africa. But after his initial visit, he felt that he has finally arrived, that he's finally in the place where he's meant to be, where he's learning to, to live again at the age of 63, when I spoke to him, so it would have been a couple of years earlier, learning to live as a black man freely for the first time in his life, having, grow, having grown up in near Auckland and Northern California, where even as a, as a sort of successful middle-class real estate agent, he has seen so much death and violence and, and the experience, carried the experience of racism with him that to the point once, once, he, once he arrived in Ghana, um, it almost, almost immediate he felt that this is where he needs to spend the rest of his life. 
even though he had never set foot in it. So th- there is sort of one example from Ghana, but on, on, on the kind of the, the flip side of that is a number of, of younger younger men and women of Ta- Taiwanese background who for, for whom the connection to to going back the idea of going back to, to Taiwan has been kind of forced on them because they're the generation that entered the workforce right after around the financial crisis of 2008 2009 places like Taiwan weathered that much better than western economies um the, the going home is sort of, in a way, lacks that spiritual meaning, that journey to the homeland that that you that you and I probably <laughs> romanticize and think about. And there's a transactional element in their return. They're there because they can teach English and 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 live live very well on a relatively small salary that they make in in Taipei, uh, and it's an adventure. The young is an adventure, and there, and but they don't rule out g- going back to North America. Most, most, all the characters I spoke in that chapter sort of have their roots in North America. So I, I, I find it, I find it incredibly rich and rewarding to talk to all these people whose whose return journeys vary quite, um, vary to some extent, and and that's just this. You know, my way of saying is that it's not a monolithic narrative around return. It's as complex a story as immigration, and we. I believe that we need to talk about it as well for both for host countries like Canada and the US and Australia, the, the new world that quote unquote new world that takes in new immigrants, but also in terms of what does that say about immigration and global movement in general. Hmm. I wonder if there's an hesitation to, to talk about it, because hmm. if as an immigrant you talk about wanting to return, maybe you're feeding into that narrative that you'd you don't quite belong in your new country or your mm-hmm. or you know people who dream of sending us back quote unquote or you know loving the <laughs> hearing that and like <laughs> yes. oh great you don't you feel like you belong better over there please yeah. go please yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i mean this is why i chose that subtitle where we go back to where we come from because i wanted to reclaim that chant or that racist taunt like go back to where you come from i, I heard it you know, over the years. And I wanted to say that, uh, first of all, that it is my right to go back to where I come from if I want to. And it's, and I'm not, a, like, I am not, I don't see that as anything that is negative or implying defeat. And the, the big thing is that for the longest time, at least in my mind, I saw returns as, as a kind of a last resort, as a defeat. You immigrated but you didn't really make it. Like if you talk about North America, for example, like you immigrated, but you you weren't able to integrate properly or you didn't, it wasn't a su- the success story that you hope you'd be. So you go back and, you know, you, you, you know, you retreat in a way to where you come from. But as, as I reported the book and as I started looking into return studies, which is a kind of a really burgeoning field within migration studies, um, I, it's it's actually I, I I stand corrected. I think it is return comes with a lot of agency and control over your narrative, over your life story, of where 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 it is right now and where we, we'd like it to be. Many of the people I spoke to, and that includes that includes my own desire. It, they were they were thinking of their final resting place, like they're at the final stage. Is in life, maybe they're in at retirement or past retirement. Worked for 30, 40 years in England um, or the U.S. or Canada, and they're thinking they're tired and they just want to go 
back, buy a piece of buy a home or buy, buy a piece of land. Particularly, this is a story in Jamaica, and and think about the final third, the third act of their of their lives, and and I don't think that's that that to me that not, does not imply defeat, but to me it is it is the ultimate in agency saying. I'm going to go back to my homeland and it will have my remains when the time comes. I'm going to change the narrative of seeing the West as the ultimate destination where everybody should be and everybody should be happy because we have a much better standard of living. And I'm going to go back to, in many cases, a still developing country or countries that are ravaged by, by conflict or violence. And I'm going to reclaim that land that or that cult that culture that I turn my back on. I, th- I think that's a very powerful statement. And people who return, like they go through a very complex emotional journey, but they come out, in most cases, they come out of it the other end, feeling that they have gained control of their lives. Mm. In a way, it matches the way that we that our lives evolve. I think more and more, we don't have lifelong jobs anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't have lifelong careers and lifelong marriages we we have phases <laughs> right more and more maybe maybe it's the same with countries we have we have phases and things can end without failing absolutely about this is i mean I, there's no reason to think that because you immigrated to say you came to canada and or the us and the, you, you've lived you know part of the American dream or whatever. There is an older generation and there's no reason for that to be all your story. I mean, there's still, there's still new acts to be written. And I, I think for me, for me personally, I, I, I've been in, I've been in Canada for 25 years and in, I, I know in England for eight years prior to that. So I've been away from the Middle East and the part of the world I come from and my native tongue of Arabic for 33 years now. And I, and I, in fact, the older I get, the stronger the connection becomes, or the, the the stronger the longing for it becomes. Now, listen, Isabel, I'm a gay man of a certain age. I am never going to be at home in the Middle East. Like I know that for a fact, and I and yet I think my return fantasy or my return story has so many contradictions and so many irreconcilable elements. Because how do I feel at home? In, a, in part of the world that is still known for its homophobia and more than homophobia, probably violence against a gay man like myself. So there's perhaps there is nothing. Um, part of return is also incredibly irrational and and it doesn't always make sense on paper. But, it, but it's still the call. The call of the homeland is too powerful, and you, I tried to the best of my ability to resolve that conflict in the book. Hmm. The challenge with with return, it's something I've experienced probably on a smaller scale because I wasn't gone for 30 years, but I've I've moved away and returned home to France um, twice before. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when you when you go to live abroad, you kind of, you break something. You don't realize it at the time. Mm-hmm. But that sense of unconditional belonging somewhere because you kind of adopt you know, the mores of wherever you go to. Mm-hmm. And um, you're always going to be a foreigner where you go, but suddenly you kind of become a foreigner at home as well. Did you feel that in, when you went back? I Which did. Way? I still, mm-hmm. I did. And I, and I still do. And it's, it's what, it's what made return really hard for me mm-hmm. and what made me eventually leave again. And I'm curious if you've heard that from, from other, uh, from interviewees of, of yours, but mm-hmm. It's very hard to feel like a foreigner at home 
When you live abroad, you expect it. Mm -hmm. But when you go home and you still don't belong, it's, um, it's, it's pretty painful. It hurts. Yeah, no, I, I definitely heard that from several, from several people. Some, some people from, from Jamaica in particular who, who have fantasized about return for a long time, went back and then found themselves sort of mired in the cycle of violence. And, and also they don't belong because they speak you know, American, American English or British English. And so they stand out even within, they may look like everyone else, but they stand out uh, when, as soon as they open their mouth and they become sort of a subject to exploitation. And, and, and everyone tries to, to, everyone sees them as having come, coming back with money and therefore they're sort of ripe for exploitation. And, and, and the, the way I look at it, I think it's like we, all, we often cast ourselves as the lead character in, the, in our return stories. Uh, the fact is that we return to countries that have moved on in a way. They've got on with their life. The language um, has changed. I talk in the book about how my Arabic seems to be stuck in 1970s <laughs> so, so, or 60s, even Arabic that is so dated. And then I was like the laughing stock of my nephew and niece when I tried to speak Arabic to them. They moved on with their lives. They have other concerns they don't. You are not the center of their attention when you go home. I mean, they're, 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 the, the context has, has changed so much that you are no longer um, the focus of the story. In fact, you're just a supporting character now. You're, and you have to just accept the fact that um, what, what you're longing for um, is really um, a state of mind rather than a physical place. The physical place has changed. You go back to Cairo, and it's not the Cairo that I grew up in at all. The population more or less doubled in, in 40, in 35 years or so. It's crowded. It is, it is rough around, much, much more, like, rougher around the edges than I remember it as a child. And I think the Cairo that I'm always trying to reclaim is the Cairo of my childhood. Not only does it absolutely kind of not exist, but it probably wasn't that realistic to begin with. I over-romanticized that childhood because I was a child or a young man, and I probably didn't see many of the things that my parents were worried about. Now now I understand why my parents were, were always worried when you stayed out late as a young man in Cairo, because there is a, there is a violent street culture there. And but I didn't, you know, being young and foolhardy, I never even noticed it. So I think the thing I would emphasize is that for a lot of returnees, they think they're going to go back to where they, they're going to pick up from where they left off. And they just don't understand that it is they're returning to, yes, the same country, but it's not the same culture or, or people. Because, you know, you change and they've changed as well. And you expect them to stay exactly how you remember them. Mm. So in a way, it's um, it's a nostalgia, and and within the context of immigration, there is a physical place to return to. But it's almost not that different from someone who never left and just misses, you know, the what the country was in yes. his or her adolescence. Or uh, I mean, uh, that is at the heart of Trumpism, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, make make America great again is about a, a nostalgia for an age in which America was probably predominantly white, economically much more vibrant. And, and so, th I mean, the weaponization of nostalgia is a, big, is a big story. I don't actually go into it in great depth in the book, but, but what, I, what I do sort of mention is how that some countries 
uses that dramatization or that nostalgia very effectively to to kind of connect the, the, the diaspora with the homeland. Maybe for emotional reasons, but mostly would be for political and economic reasons. Like you, 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 talk, you see the way the, the, the I mean, I, I talk in the book about Northern Ireland and Belfast, the way Belfast is presented to the Irish diaspora as, as this sort of new technology place where tech and, and upstart, you know, sort of digital economies are thriving, but it's also a good place to raise children. Uh, you can you, your money goes a lot further in when you buy a house in a nice neighborhood, and you can you, you can your kids can walk to work uh, safely, just like you did when you were a child. And and that is that is in a way playing. It's a very manipulative narrative in many ways, and maybe true, but it, it plays on your sense of nostalgia of childhood, of a kind of a lost, more innocent time. Even if you grew up during the troubles, because you know the troubles have so so far. In, behind like in terms of it's just time, so much time has passed that it's actually kind of almost ripe for historical revisionism in a way mm. you mentioned you mentioned you know trump and nationalism it was actually one it's actually one part of a story that makes me uncomfortable and i could tell from reading that it made you uncomfortable too or is it's it's hard to reconcile in your mind mm. is um especially the chapter on the basque country and having grown up in france um you know, when I hear of Basque nationalism, I think terrorism, which obviously is not all is not all of it by any means. But it's interesting how a lot of these return diasporas talk, you know, rely on a form of national identity and nationalism mm. that we think of as almost quaint and romantic coming from these small powerless nations. But mm. it is the same dynamics that, you know, make nasty empires and and you know and trump and brexit and all that is is mm -hmm. that same idea of you know because you were born somewhere somehow you belong to it and you have mm -hmm. a right to it which is hard to reconcile with the more internationalist attitude of of an immigrant uh, uh, i mean exactly in in many ways i mean the basque i'm glad you mentioned the basque reason because you know given spain's location as a whole and and the waves of immigrants from from north africa and sub-saharan africa the whole country but particularly the basque region is um kind of in a state of flux in terms of population demographic and in the basque region and as i mentioned in the book one of the the leading party's uh, slogan is the homeland for the basque a homeland for everybody and 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 that i I really wanted to investigate is that true can can someone who has absolutely no connection to the basque ever feel like the basque is is their homeland when when clearly the notion of a basque homeland is rooted has changed has shifted over the years it began with you know suggesting that it's a, a certain a certain blood type that makes you a basque to a certain sort of connection to the land like you have to have as you said you have to have been born there to now just whether you speak euskara or not the, the basque language or not because it there, there anytime you try to connect national identity to a birth a place of birth or um, a certain geography you run the risk of sort of the, the virulent form of nationalism blood and soil it's a far right language and i would totally agree that that returns some sometimes yes they, they deploy a number of nationalist um, uh, other slogans or strategies to to invite people to come back i mean that's definitely the case in china the idea of wooing the the talents that are Chinese talents that are contributing to medical advancement and science in the West 
back to China in order to contribute to China's continuing the rising the rise to, to as a superpower. Uh, that's definitely a nationalist element there. However, I also argue that return can soften the edges of nationalism somehow because you're you're coming in and out of of the country with that had notions around nation like nationality, residence, citizen rights, and you're creating this subcategory of returnees who who. They people some of these governments want you for what you can what you're offering back and they have to give you concessions they have to give you some voting rights they have to give you some cultural training if you want to your children to to learn the language or whatever for free and in a way because you go in and out of the borders and you or you come back from another culture you're already kind of undermining the single narrative of a nationalist political system you're actually arguing that uh, yes, I belong here, but I'm bringing with me ideas from the my my adopted country as well. So, to me, on I mean, I, I don't know if that theory holds, but but I propose it in the book, and and I just suggest that actually return can somehow soften the edges of naturalism because people also return with a whole different set of ideas, including democracy and modernization. That 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 sort of revises revises the way things have been done traditionally in their homeland. Mm. Oh, you won't you won't hear any argument from me on the value of <laughs> of that mixing and the, those ideas traveling right. back and forth as right. as people do, um, you know, and sometimes also migrating to a third country and a fourth and a fifth. Mm-hmm. And but it's interesting, you know, with that idea of of return in nationalism, who gets to wield that that identity and that and that power of return? Because if you talk to a young Moroccan man, he you know is trying to cross the, the Gibraltar. Uh, pass, you know, could just as much claim return, right? They were they were Arabic people in Spain for for centuries, but but that's not who gets to 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 wield that narrative right now in Spain. No, no, I, th- I think it in many ways that narrative is tied up with some notion of origin and skin color and Spanish ancestry. And I, yes, I don't think claiming that you're, you're a six, seven generation Arab from Andalusia <laughs> will, or, something, yeah. <laughs> will, or Seville or something will get you. Because, because in many ways, the, the, again, the, I guess this is, we go back to our previous question, is that the nationalist aspect of return, it is to bolster economies, it is to bolster a national identity. And there, there are categories categories of people whose return is more profitable to others. So in the Basque region, I talk about why the Basque people who are descendants of Basque from Venezuela were m- more welcomed in, um, in, in the Basque region because, you know, historically they're, they're, they are seen as Basque, even though some of them have had absolutely no contact with the with Basque culture or language or the country itself, the autonomous region itself, but it's a historical connection that will not be taken away from them ever, and that's a privilege. That's a privilege. Whereas, as you mentioned, you know, as someone who is of you know Moorish background would not would not be able to lay claim to the same identity. Mm. There's another category of un- unwanted returnees that we didn't talk about much. It's, it's people who are deported, people who mm-hmm. are who are sent back and whose you know migration story doesn't doesn't end on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, and this the, I mean, unfortunately, I was only able to cover that in relation to Jamaica, which is probably one of the uh, the countries in the world that that takes the largest number of deportees. And 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 the reason I was interested in that because I really wanted to contrast the experience of people who 
who choose to go back and people who are forced to go back. And obviously, the ultimate in being forced is to be deported, to be kicked out from one country. And, and, and what I found perhaps a kind of a perplexing about that is even though, even if they left Jamaica at a slightly older age in their 20s and they go back at their 60s, they have lost that connection to, to, to Jamaica. They have lost that connection. They, they're, they're often counted among the homeless in Jamaica. They're, they're li- and many of the people I spoke to were living in shelters because they have absolutely no, in some cases, no family. There's uh, nobody to sort, of the, to sort of look after them while they adapt into back into life in Jamaica. And the the thing that like you you wouldn't get that in in in, in, in the text, but if, if if I were to play you the audio of some of these interviews, these are American, British, like very strong British um, accents and inflected uh, and phrases that are inflected with with sort of British English, or in, in some cases these are people who grew up in the Bronx and New York and they're as American as any other uh, citizen of those cities. Uh, and now they go back to a country that's called Jamaica. And the only connection is that they were born there. And yeah, that, 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 that's a, diff- a whole different category of returns. And, in, in, and even within that, there are some who have managed to sort of rebuild their lives and others who are truly the strangers in their homeland. Like a, they, they become, they are strangers in their homeland and they, still dream or are planning to um, make, to return, as it were, to the countries that that deported them. Mm. I saw that when I was living in Cambodia, there was a wave of returns of, uh, um, so the U.S. kind of applied this systematic deporting of, of young men who had been in prison. So they were, you know, kind of kicked out of the country after serving their prison term. And so you had these these young men who were from, the Cambodian gangs in California who, you know, had showed up in California when they were like two years old, don't know Khmer, and all of a sudden they're dumped at Tompin Airport. And, you know, so uh, there was a great donut shop that (laughs) some American guy had opened. Uh, But it was was problematic because essentially America was exporting its criminality, its gangs, back to, Mm -hmm. you know, so-called countries of origin that had had no part in, in turning these young men into criminals and you know send them to Cambodia where they don't speak the language don't have connections jobs whether they're going to turn to crime um so it was it was really problematic it's the same it's the same in Jamaica yeah yeah and 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 in many cases particularly in in case of the Jamaican deportees you know some and not all of them were involved in the drug trade and for which the consumers were largely middle-class white American and they 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 paid the you know not just the ultimate price, but they paid multiple prices, whether it's prison, prison sentence in the U.S., followed by being exiled or deported from the U.S. So they have, they have really paid a very heavy price for, for catering to the habits of middle-class white America. Yeah. Yeah, well, that could be a whole other episode on the <laughs> on the on the the drug wars. So now that you've done all this research, all these interviews, I wonder how you think about your own return plans and how that has in influenced, impacted, changed your or confirmed your own plans. You were just telling me that you just moved to Vancouver, even though you were very much in love with Toronto and dedicated a book to Toronto. So. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, I was as surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I was as surprised as anyone that I made the move to Vancouver. I just, I, I just didn't think that Yemen was a possibility just yet, given the ongoing war. 
And I did not, I mean, to be honest, I did not want to lose out on this great job that I was offered while the situation in Yemen is, you know, hopefully, I don't know if it'll ever settle down, but I'd like to think it will settle down. I've never been more determined in my entire life to go back to Yemen than I am as I'm speaking to you like right now. And I, as much as Vancouver is one of the most beautiful cities in North America and probably the world, I mean, I can see forest and ocean on, on my way to campus every day, um, something I couldn't say about Toronto. I, I, I don't connect to it. I don't, I'm, I'm still new, I guess, and it will take time, but it doesn't feel like it's going to be my home. Um, I think once I retire, I'll probably leave. And I, once I retire and leave, I'll probably leave for Yemen. Oh. I'm determined. We'll check in with you then. <laughs> Find out. Catch up with me in eight episode. years from now. <laughs> another book and another episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation. It was delightful. Thank you, Isabel. It was, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for, for reading the book so carefully as well. I really appreciate that. This was Kamal Al-Salaili. His book, Return, Why We Go Back to Where We Come From, is published by HarperCollins in Canada. You can find it in bookstores and online in North America. It is not yet available elsewhere. However, you can always find a digital copy online. I will put links in the show notes and on the website. Remember that if you'd like to buy this or any other book that we recommend on the program, please use the links that I provide. Affiliate sales are a little drop in the bucket of funding borderline but it's always helpful you will find the shop at the top of the page at borderlinepod.com where you can also join to become a member becoming a member of borderline is really the best way that you can support this independent podcasting you will get transparency into this business a little bit more access to me but really mainly you will show your values and your support for independent podcasting and for this open honest conversation about immigration, about home identity, where we belong, and why we need an open world. Thank you so much for all of you who already support. And as you're doing your Black Friday shopping or your Christmas shopping, please think of Borderline. Thank you. I'm your host, Isabel Hogar Music, was by Offshane. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production, and I will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.